Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, wherever you may be joining us. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you joining our broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time, and that's where you come in. It's your questions on the Bible that uh, dictate the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So if you've got a question on a passage or two in the Bible you'd like to explore, uh, maybe you'd like to uh, get a biblical perspective on the current controversies, the concerns swirl about us, both inside or outside your circle of Christian friends. Uh, Maybe uh, you've been asked a tough question or two about uh, your Christian faith or the reliability of the Bible. We'll be happy to tackle those questions head-on on the broadcast today. Uh, We'll uh, be happy to give you uh, an insight into the events of the day, even the events of tomorrow, through biblical prophecy as we take a look at God's Word together. But we can't do it without you. It's your questions that determine the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So uh, jump on in. We've got a number of different avenues you can use to join us on the broadcast. Sean, how can people get their questions to us? Well, if you'd like to join us online, you can engage with us face-to-face on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That, of course, will be under the Watch Live tab, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on Watch Live, and you'll be sent to our page where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in the U.S. every single weekday. Note as well, on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll be able to send us your questions as the broadcast unfolds, or be able to message our ministry directly through the website, through the Contact Us page, if it is in fact not the time for the broadcast. Our email address is also spelled out for you for the purpose of receiving your Bible questions. That is questions, F-O-R-Hope, at gmail.com. If you need proper spelling or want to know how and when to use that either during or after the broadcast, perhaps you have a question of the more anonymous nature, you can make use of that as long as it is for the purpose of receiving your sincere Bible questions. And also note our social media platforms are intact as far as they're concerned. Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is a reason for hope. There, of course, you'll have the access and opportunity that our website provides, but since they don't ever like the things that we have to say. We want to make sure that you're most most accustomed to using our website in case we either have uh, takedowns on our hands or even technical malfunctions. If we don't notify you in advance, you'll still find us on our website. They can't ban us there yet. So again, questionsforhope at gmail.com, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook, A Reason for Hope on YouTube, and of course our website where we would prefer you engage with us calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, bookmark the page, and you'll be able to join us every single weekday as we're making ourselves available. And to do what? Well, let's uh, see where the Spirit takes us. Want to pray? Yeah, absolutely. Lord, thanks so much that we have this opportunity to be able to explore your Word together. I thank you, Father, that uh, your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And In these uh, challenging times we live in, who couldn't use that? So we come to you, Lord. We ask that you would speak. Uh, May your Word lead us into all truth as 
this uh, you promised the ministry of your Holy Spirit would accomplish within us. We pray, Father, that your word would not return to you void, but accomplish everything that you would send it out to do to build up and encourage and comfort your people. We pray there are any watching this broadcast uh, that are on the outside in looking at a relationship with you, that your spirit would draw them, that uh, you would reveal to them how much you love them personally, that you sent Jesus to die for them on a cross to pay the price for their sins and to reconcile them to you, and that they can be forgiven and given a brand new life in you if they'll simply put their faith and trust in you. We pray that many would make that decision all over the world as a result of this broadcast today, and that's not too uh, big of a request to make to you, the true and living God. Thank you for loving us, and thank you for giving us this opportunity to focus in on your word. In Jesus' name, amen. That is true. Now, we would like to start off on a cheery note, but this is the world we are living in. Anything to update us about on the news? Well, uh, interesting interview uh, went down uh, last night on 60 Minutes. A lot of uh, coverage of uh, Joe Biden's uh, interview with Scott Pelley. Uh, but uh, the more fascinating interview was one that followed. It was an interview with Leslie Stahl with Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi, uh, the uh, high watermark or low watermark, if you will, of this interview, at least the point of controversy, was uh, when Raisi was asked uh, about his involvement in uh, a uh, Iranian death squad uh, that operated in the 1980s. In fact, uh, Stahl asked Risey whether he was responsible for 3,000 deaths by hanging under orders from then-Supreme Leader Ayatollah Rullah Khomeini. Well, uh, Risey was the youngest member of the Tehran Death Committee in 1988 when it was uh, uh, designated to eliminate jailed members of uh, a Iranian uh, opposition group. He was 28 at the time of the massacres. Uh, so uh, when asked uh, about this directly, as is usually the case, uh, he uh, refused to answer the questions, but uh, began to sort of uh, scattershot a number of accusations about Israel and uh, the Jews. Uh, once again, uh, the, uh, the interview uh, went uh, along these lines uh, where, uh, again, Leslie Stahl tried to nail him down and said, so are you saying that the Holocaust never actually happened? Well, uh, again, uh, Ricey, uh said uh, that uh, there may be some signs that the Holocaust happened, but certainly these things need to be investigated. If so, they should allow it to be investigated and researched as if it were not a foregone conclusion. Uh, you can imagine that this uh, created a, uh, a hornet's nest of, uh, of opposition. As a matter of fact, uh, Israel's ambassador to the UN, Gilad Erdan, said, shocking to hear Iranian President Raisi's remarks calling to question where the Holocaust happened. Uh, I call on uh, UN Secretary General uh, Antonio Guerres to deny the denier a world stage to spread anti-Semitism and hatred. The UN will receive a new low if they give the butcher of Tehran a platform. So here we see uh, a, a very interesting uh, set of uh, circumstances. Uh, that uh, the uh, the fact that an individual who was directly responsible for 3,000 deaths by hanging in the early 80s is now the prime minister 
of Iran. Uh, following up on that question, Leslie Stahl said, so you're not sure, I'm getting that you're not sure, what about Israel's right to exist? Arizi uh, responded by saying the people of Palestine are the reality. This is the right of the people of Palestine who were forced to leave their homes and motherland. The Americans are supporting this false regime there to take root and be established there. What about the Abraham Accords uh, that normalized ties with Israel? He said this, if a state shakes hands with a Zionist regime, then they are an accomplice to their crimes. They are stabbing the very idea of Palestine in the back. Uh, raising uh, questions about the nuclear negotiations, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, Rizzi told Stahl that Tehran would be serious about reviving a deal on the nuclear program. If there are guarantees, the U.S. would not withdraw from it again. Iran's uh, foreign minister said last month that Tehran needed stronger guarantees from Washington, that the revival of the 2015 nuclear deal uh, would uh, be in place uh, even if the current uh, administration uh, was re, uh, replaced by uh, another uh, political entity like the uh, Trump uh, administration. He said, if it's a good deal and a fair deal, we would be serious about reaching an agreement. Uh, it needs to be lasting. There need to be guarantees. If there were a guarantee that the Americans would withdraw from the deal, we'd be interested in that. Stahl said that as far as you can tell, you don't use it for things that can help your citizens like electricity, referring to their nuclear program. You say you want it for peaceful reasons like what? He said, well, the development of medicine, agriculture, oil, and gas. Uh, about 1.8% of Iran's country's electricity is generated by nuclear power, according to the International Atomic Energy Agency. Arizi said that Americans have broken their promises on the deal under which uh, Tehran had restrained its nuclear program in exchange for relief from U.S., European, and uh, U.N. sanctions. He said the sanctions are very tyrannical. They are a tyranny against the people of Tehran. Uh, he said they did it unilaterally. They said, I'm out of the deal. Now making promises of becoming meaningless. We cannot trust the Americans because of their behavior that we've already seen from them. That is why there's no guarantee. There is no trust. So uh, again, uh, very interesting uh, details that are mentioned there, especially Iran's uh, continual denial that even the Holocaust took place, uh, their denial of uh, following along with the statutes of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Actions, blaming the Americans for this rather than their uh, verified uh, uh, unwillingness to uh, have, say, a neutral body like the International Atomic Energy Agency follow up and see if they were, in fact, pushing towards a nuclear weapon. I think it's a foregone conclusion that the Iranians are developing a nuclear weapon. I think uh, it's very interesting uh, to see that uh, Israel is not going to take this sitting down. It will be very interesting as well to see what steps the United States and the Biden administration are going to do going forward about all of this. We know prophetically uh, from passages like uh, Zechariah chapter 12, that at one point all nations of the world are going to be gathered together against uh, Israel. Uh, and so uh, that tendency is going to continue to uh, prevail. Uh, it's just uh, very interesting that a Holocaust denier like uh, Ricey can get a, a platform at the UN. And uh, there are other Holocaust deniers that uh, have spoken recently at institutions like Columbia University and have been welcomed as a um, uh, 
a, an opportunity to present uh, freedom of speech. Now, again, if you turn around at Columbia University and try to talk about uh, Iran violating its nuclear uh, uh, responsibilities, uh, the, uh, the violations of human rights that the Khomeini regime has uh, been a part of, you will not get a, uh, a seating there. As a matter of fact, if you go on and talk about the fact of the Holocaust there, uh, you'll probably have protesters that will shut you down. So very interesting stuff indeed. And for those of you who are also concerned about the implications of this going forward, obviously when we're put in a position where we're seeing a trend go on the rise, whether that's in religious false claims or in this case historical, we as Christians have first and foremost a duty to not only love the Jewish people but to understand our reasons why. So when someone comes up to you and says either the Holocaust was over-exaggerated or in the case of most Muslim leaders never happened at all, we need to be prepared on how to present an accurate and a consistent view as to why we would think contrary. And there are plenty of resources and documentaries we'd recommend for you. The earlier to the events of the Holocaust, the better. Yeah. If you can find documentation and footage and maybe store them on your phone, you can talk about the eyewitnesses and their reports. Of course, Hamas in last, this last February would host celebrations for Holocaust survivors, which is very inconsistent if they denied that it took place to begin with. But when it comes to not just the anti-Holocaust claims, but the overall anti-Jewish sentiment that's being more and more propagated as fundamental to the religion of Islam and, of course, the socialists that side with them, we need to be prepared. So when it comes to the basic facts of the Holocaust and we as Christians wanting to love the truth rather than a lie, what do you think would be some places for people listening to start? What would be some areas of research they'd want to get down? Well, uh, I would think that uh, if you really want the definitive, uh, a definitive source of information on this, uh, I would highly recommend uh, taking the time to uh, take a look at the film Shoah uh, that was uh, produced in 1985. It's a French documentary film. Uh, the word Shoah literally means uh, the catastrophe. Uh, and uh, in this uh, film documentary about the Holocaust, uh, you have uh, interview with survivors, witnesses, and perpetrators uh, dur during visits to German uh, Holocaust sites uh, across Poland, including extermination camps. And do we have any of the, say for example, I'm kind of doing a layup here, but the trials for those who were perpetrating the Holocaust and them confessing and admitting under oath that they did in fact commit these acts? Yeah, well, again, the Nuremberg trials, uh, look it up on Wikipedia, you can get links to it, uh, to these uh, particular individuals that made uh, these kind of admissions, uh, a lot of them uh, saying that they were only following orders and trying to get out of responsibility for that. And of course, if you want a collection of archaeological evidence as well as the documentation to support and associate it with the numbers that they claim, we would also recommend the Holocaust museums that are not only in Jerusalem but also available in the United States for viewing as well. They give the documentation, they show that these were the lives that were not only left unaccounted accounted for, but also the ones that they could note and list by name. And it's quite a sobering sight when you go to the annals of people they were able to verify, not just by rote, but by body in the death camps and being exhumed from their mass graves. 
I mean, just literally put by in standard font, by the way, in books right. and volumes upon volumes in a library that would probably, probably as far as square footage is concerned, rival most mega churches as far as square footage. And that needs to be understood. We answer the truth, or we answer lies rather, with the truth. Make sure that that's an area of combat you're able to defend and that we are taking the opportunity and time to not only know about history, but to do so so we don't repeat it. Yeah, and you know, as far as um, you know, the idea, well, you're just using Jewish biased sources and things along this line. Uh, you can look up the Nuremberg Trials, uh, the facts, definition, and prominent defendants at Britannica. Dot com. Uh, they have an article on it. History.com has uh, a, uh, a very uh, easily accessible oversight of the Nuremberg trials and those who were uh, uh, convicted of war crimes and why they were convicted, the evidence behind it uh, at uh, history.com. Just look up the Nuremberg uh, trials that are involved there. Uh, also, the Holocaust Encyclopedia has an entire section of it uh, devoted to uh, the Nuremberg Trials. With uh, citation. And also uh, here in the United States, the National World War II Museum.org has uh, the Nuremberg Trials on there as well. And uh, you can see uh, these individuals, including uh, Adolf Eichmann, who was the architect of uh, the uh, Holocaust itself. Uh, the final solution. Not only uh, do you see him tried in absentia at the Nuremberg Trials because he escaped uh, for a time, but then was captured in Argentina, sent to Israel, and put on trial. Uh, the trial of uh, Adolf Eichmann under those uh, circumstances is also available uh, if uh, you would like to take a look at all of that. And if you're also in the field and study of Islam, I would also recommend looking up the name Haj Amin al-Husseini, who, by the way, lived in Berlin and was a close advisor and supporter of Adolf Hitler during the Holocaust. And we even have written documentation of him requesting SS soldiers for the uh, what was being attempted to be the revived Ottoman Empire. And, of course, that his Muslim observations about the Jews were informed by the Quran, not just his individual biases. We also see even today that people who adhere to an Islamic worldview in areas like school and in politics also express vocally a deep admiration for Adolf Hitler because of his, well, literal atrocities committed by the Jews, so or committed to the Jews. So make sure that this is something that you're informed about, that you can defend, and that the same seriousness is taken to history in a Jewish sense today as it is in the ancient world that's referencing the Bible. And if you're interested in uh, digging deeper into Leslie Stahl's interview, uh, there's an article in the Jerusalem Post uh, with this headline, uh, Iran's uh, Rossi. Let me uh, make sure that I've got it up there. Iran's Rossi says research needed to verify if the Holocaust happened. You can look that up today. It's one of the lead articles that you'll find there on the Jerusalem Post. Well, we could recommend a few sources. Oh, wait, we just did. So with that being said, let us know if that was edifying. And going out to your questions now, we want to begin with an email question from Yari, who uh, basically just recounts a story where a miracle took place and this drove their friends to Christ. Now, you ask 
if the story's true. I wasn't there, so I can't verify it. But when it comes to the question, does God still perform miracles like this, would it be appropriate for a miracle to be performed in order to produce salvation? And it's an important question because a lot of people set themselves up for either disappointment, frustration, or even shipwreck in their relationship with God by leveling expectations on God that when he doesn't follow through on them, they conclude that he doesn't exist, when in reality you're holding him to a standard he never set up for himself. It's kind of silly when it's put that way, but you need to make sure you don't set yourself up for these things, even in increments. So when people obviously give accounts, well, this happened to me, or this happened to this person, I heard it from a friend of a friend who's going out with some girl who saw him pass out at 31 Flavors last night, you you get the reference. It's all hearsay. We need to make sure that our base, the basis of our belief isn't on experience, but on verifiable history. Because while people could be motivated to lie, there is, in fact, a way to test claims, and we do so in Scripture as well. Yeah, and that's such an important point. You know, I remember not long after I became a Christian, uh, there was a photograph that was being passed around at my high school that supposedly proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, what it was, was it was this uh, black and white kind of grainy photo that had the uh, classic, uh, you know, picture of Jesus in his robes, uh, surrounded by clouds and kind of holding out his hands. And they said, oh, yeah, this was taken uh, by a person who was on a 747 jet. They saw a cloud formation they thought was pretty, and they took a uh, picture out the window, and then this came out. So this really proves the resurrection. And there were all kinds of people passing it around, and it kind of created sort of a dust-up uh, there on campus. A lot of you are like, whoa, man, that's real proof. Now, even at that early stage in my walk with God, I looked at that and I was like, eh, I don't know. You know, photographs can be faked. I have no idea, you know, who took this photo, you know, was it doctored and so on. Uh, and the, the, the reason I, I thought this was such a turning point in my walk with God was that it drove me to ask the question, okay, why do I believe Jesus rose from the dead? Is it because somebody took a picture out of the window of a 747 jet, or is there better evidence to base your faith upon than that? Uh, you know, there, there are those who will say, oh, well, you know, these people, uh, you know, challenged God, and they said, do a miracle, and then this miracle happened, and they all believed. Okay. You'll find just as many stories of people who challenge God. He didn't respond and continued not to believe. Yeah, there's the famous story about uh, Colonel Robert Ingersoll, who used to do uh, atheistic crusades back in the uh, 1900s when Darwinism was uh, getting big. Uh, His uh, closing uh, argument was uh, he would stand before the crowd and he would say, okay, if there is a God, God knows that I hate him and I despise everything he stands for. I will give him one minute to strike me dead if he is real. And uh, inevitably, he would count it down and have the crowd count it down. And then there you'd have Ingersoll standing there, uh, healthy as the day uh, he was born. And people would go, wow. And, and it really uh, made an impact on people until uh, one time he tried to do that. And a Christian pastor standing in the front row uh, stood up and addressed the crowd. And he said, only a fool would think they could, exerc- they could exhaust, exhaust the patience of God uh, in one minute. And it sort of took the air out of Ingersoll's tires. And note the whole argument and point behind that. It's under the expectation that if I tell God to strike me dead, he's obligated to do so, or it proves he's not there. When God 
never judged people on that basis. You know, or the idea that God could uh, create uh, out of nothing, ex nihilo, as they say, and they would say, okay, we're going to put this uh, fish tank here uh, on the, uh, the uh, lab uh, table. Uh, we're going to ask God to create something out of nothing, ready, go. Well, why doesn't God do that? Because A, he never said that he would perform those signs to entertain us, and B, he's provided his standards for why we would trust him or not, and it's not based off of treating him like some sort of circus monkey. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the question comes up, well, you know, if you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof, if God wants us to believe in him, why doesn't he do something extraordinary? Well, here's something extraordinary that God, in fact, did that would satisfy any real fair inquirer. If they want to find out if uh, the God of the Bible is true or not, here you go. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 said, For I delivered you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Uh, now notice, he died according to the Scriptures. In other words, Paul is bringing into this realm of proof the proof of biblical prophecy. So a historical event, the death of Jesus of Nazareth, was in line with the scriptures as they were understood to the first Corinthians audience. That would have been the Old Testament, as we right. call it today. Like Isaiah 53, for instance, written 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene, is such a specific picture of Jesus' suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And the motives therein. That, uh, that there are a lot of... Uh, uh, attempts to late date it, uh, but we know from the Isaiah scroll that is on display in the Israeli Museum of Natural History that dates to over 200 years before the time of Christ that uh, it, it uh, simply doesn't, uh, that objection doesn't stand up under examination. Yeah, virtually but identical. You notice it says he was buried. How was he buried? He was buried in a tomb. There was a 800-pound uh, to two-ton stone put in front of that tomb. That tomb was sealed and guarded by Roman guards. Also uh, predicted in Isaiah. And it says that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Well, what scriptures? Jesus' own promise that he would rise from the dead among them. Uh, the individual that uh, wants to find out if Jesus rose from the dead has to take a look at the evidence and the explanations for the empty tomb. And the only explanation that fits the facts, if you'd like to explore some of the other objections, like the swoon theory, mistaken identity theory, uh, these sort of things, the Roman collaboration theory, uh, we could talk about those. If you want to uh, talk about those, uh, please uh, include your questions in the comments. But notice it says that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and he was seen by Cephas, that is Simon Peter, then by the twelve, and then he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, what Paul is saying is, is that this wasn't a one-off event with one or two people maybe having a hysterical experience. Uh, we're talking about 500 people at one time seeing the risen Christ, and Paul basically says to the Corinthians, uh, these people are still alive if you want to check out their testimony. Now, notice it says, after this, he was seen by James, that is, his half-brother, who didn't believe in him at that point, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Uh, you know, again, the uh, conversion of Saul of Tarsus to the apostle Paul is incredibly powerful evidence that Jesus rose from the dead in a moment of history. So, you know, when we have this event, 
that uh, essentially is attested to by better and fuller evidence than almost any other event in ancient history. There's more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead than there was that Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo, for instance. Uh, you know, if an individual is really interested in finding out whether the God of the Bible is true, rather than coming up with something like, okay, there's a car without an engine in it, God, can you make the car start? Um, you know, people will come up with all kinds of explanations for that. I used to have a neighbor uh, who was uh, quite the skeptic who used to say, if God wants me to believe in him tonight, uh, why doesn't he just appear to me in the sky? Why doesn't he just rearrange the stars to say, repent? Because the individual you're quoting, Richard Dawkins, when he made that proclamation, also made No, this was my neighbor before Dawkins. But, but yeah. noting he's uh, the one popularizing it now, is making this claim also from the same mouth that spoke these words, if there were to be stars rearranged in the sky, I'd be more willing and able to believe it was a hyper-advanced alien civilization than it was a omnipotent god, because that's just simply not rational. Well, here's the interesting point. You're noticing the Friend, if I set up standards for God to prove something right. that I already don't want to believe, then when he demonstrates that, and he knows that when he demonstrates that, if he demonstrates that, you haven't suddenly become a whole new person based off of one experience. You'll approach it from the same mindset that doesn't want to believe in God and will view the data accordingly until a heart change takes place, which is 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3's point, there won't be any life change. Yeah, you know, and uh, you know, the thing that hit me, at first I thought that was a really compelling thing. Oh, well, why doesn't God appear to him in the sky? And then it dawned on me, if this guy is going to believe just because uh, God appeared in the sky tonight, what's he going to have to do tomorrow to get him to believe? You know, and uh, haven't we kind of reversed the roles here? Who is God and who is the man in this situation? Is God the Lord or are, is God, uh, as Bob Dylan monkey. once put it, uh, just an errand boy to satisfy our wondering desires? And like you say, you know, even if uh, someone saw something that spectacular, uh, obviously they could come up with all kinds of other explanations uh, as to why they want to believe. Why? Because uh, unbelief isn't a question of the mind. It's a question of the heart. It's not that people can't believe in God. It's that they won't believe in God. And a great diagnostic question, I think, to ask uh, a person who says, well, why doesn't God do a miracle uh, for me you know, in the here and now? You know, it kind of comes down to this. Okay, honestly, if something like that happened, would you really believe? You know, in fact, uh, when people will bring up questions like this, oftentimes uh, the, the best question to ask them in return goes something like this. If I were to answer that question to your satisfaction, would you consider giving your life to Jesus? Now, I would say that when I've asked nonbelievers that question, I'm still holding out a 1% hope that one day they will say yes. But inevitably, they go, no. And, uh, you know, what I'll say to them at that point is this, you know, so it's not a question of information you're lacking. It's a question of the will. It's not that you can't believe in God. It's that you won't believe in God that's the issue. Do you really think that's a rational position? And again, we can go the Sherlock Holmes route and go on alternatives and say, okay, if we were to assume that in your world, 
if God exists, he would be performing a miracle. God doesn't exist, didn't perform a miracle, therefore he doesn't exist, is based on the entire existence of somebody other than you is based on whether or not they do things for you. Well, again, let's apply the logic consistently. If I haven't met somebody in the world and I demand that they do something despite me having no positive relationship with them, and I deny their existence on the fundamental assumption that they are obligated to entertain me and my whims in order to be existing, well, they're going to continue to exist whether I like them or they played according to my rules or not. It proves nothing other than the fact I'm stubborn and unreasonable. But let's again take another step back and at least give the atheists a benefit of the doubt. We're speaking to Christians here who apparently had a conversion experience as a result of this, and you and I cringe just as much when we hear these stories told more than the Bible, when we're given hearsay as opposed to history. This is the whole point. One of two things is true about these sort of stories, Yari. They're either telling the truth, which is great, but they wouldn't have you know, gotten a, just as much a uh, conversion experience if they just took the Bible seriously and examined it. They didn't need the miracle, but they got it. That's right. fun. Or they're lying, in which case, oh, well, so you Christians can just lie if it, the end justifies the means. Well, according to the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, Paul brings up the opportunity people have taken back in that day to say, well, don't you guys just say that the truth should grow for my lie? And he says, why then am I still judged as a sinner? It's still a lie. It's still not God's heart. Right. So if someone says, well, their intentions were good, well, we need to tell this story because it gives people hope. You know what can give people hope? Reality. And if we have it documented right here, we don't need to add to it. Yeah. And, you know, the only other thing I would add to that is, you know, some people say, well, you know, I know somebody who came to Christ because of one of these stories or one of these claims. Okay. Uh, if they came to Christ, understand at that moment the holy spirit is going to lead them into all truth and uh, inevitably he's going to show them that there is a far greater foundation for their faith than just some hearsay story that sounds like an urban legend yeah yeah um as a follow-up we got a question from mac who wants to know can an alcoholic make it to heaven well can anyone make it to heaven if we're just describing them, the answer is no. How then could someone, anyone, regardless of their biological disposition towards alcohol or any other substance, make it to heaven? Yeah. Well, the, the bottom line is uh, there are all kinds of individuals whose uh, personal resumes uh, might be a little distressing to us, who in fact are going to go to heaven. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, listen to this, uh, about individuals that are, in fact, going to go to heaven. Uh, Here we see, he said, Do you not know, uh, the Apostle Paul writing here in verse 9, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, those who are involved with sexual relationships before marriage, nor idolaters, those who are worshiping false gods, nor adulterers, those having sexual relations with uh, uh, their spouse, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice drunkards, the idea in the original language is someone who's an alcoholic, can't get through the day without a drink. Uh, they're not going to enter the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So the factor that will bring you to heaven isn't how you sin, it's who you go to deal with your sin. Yeah, it's not who you were before you became a Christian. It's putting your faith and your trust in Jesus. That's the issue. And this brings us to a really important point. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we are told, For it is by grace, God's unmerited favor, that you're saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not what we do for God even getting our act together that saves us. It's what Jesus did for us when we didn't have our act together. God demonstrates his own love towards us, Romans 5, 8 says, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we're at our worst, that's when Jesus died for us. So can an alcoholic be saved? Yeah, an alcoholic can be saved. But the next verse is really key. Ephesians 2, 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we become Christians, then God begins to change our lives. That's why we call the Christian experience being born again. Chapter God, 2 takes place before chapter 5. Right. And now that we are born again, God is going to be about the business of changing our lives. Now, inevitably, people are going to bring up the idea that, well, I know somebody who claims to be a born-again Christian, and they're the biggest crank I know. Uh, you know, I think of a situation that we've dealt with uh, recently in the church where an individual who struggled uh, with alcoholism for most of his life, uh, you know, hit and miss, he'd go into recovery, fall off the wagon, and when he would, he'd, he'd binge and he'd binge hard. Uh, this individual uh, dying of cirrhosis of the liver as a result of all of that. Is that person going to go to heaven? Well, the issue about going to heaven is not whether they struggled with their alcoholism. The issue is what Jesus Christ did for them. People say, well, you know, so, you know, this person could be, you know, this raging alcoholic all of their lives and, you know, uh, have this hit and miss uh, thing where they're falling back in their sin all the time and still go to heaven. Here's the deal. C.S. Lewis made an interesting uh, observation about that. Uh, he said, uh, you know, why should I become a Christian? One of the biggest cranks and sinners I know are Christians. Well, how do you know how much bigger a crank or a sinner this person would have been if they hadn't been a Christian? You know, God deals with people individually. And in the case of, of this person uh, that, uh, you know, we're dealing with here, you know, the thing that always hits me is this. He struggled. He didn't just give in to his alcoholism. He had his ups and downs and his in-betweens for sure. And obviously, there's going to be an awful lot of pain as a result of that struggle. But what would he have been like if he'd never become a Christian? We there don't know. There were no know. ups at all. We would have known. There would have been no ups at all. So, you know, uh, rather than sitting around trying to second guess, one thing I'm eternally grateful for is that God doesn't say, okay, Scott, do you think this person deserves to go to heaven or not? My opinion doesn't really count. Neither does yours. The only person who's count, whose opinion is going to count is Jesus. And Jesus laid it out pretty succinctly. In John chapter 5 and verse 24, he said, the one who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He will not enter into judgment, but is passed from death into life. That's how you get into heaven. Now, the struggle to become more like Christ, the battle that we have with the old man who wants to run things the old way, the transformation 
that God wants to do in our lives to make us like Jesus, that's an issue called sanctification. That's different from salvation. And God does a different work in different peoples in different ways. And some people are going to make a lot more progress than others in that process. But uh, to say that just because an individual struggled in that area, will an alcoholic go to heaven? Well, you know, I'll confess to you, I have uh, I know of three generations of alcoholics I come from. Uh, God told me early on in my walk with God that I shouldn't be a social drinker at all because I really feel like I have that tendency in my life. Um, do I drink? No, I don't drink for, the, for that reason and also for the fact that I'm a pastor. And if some person who's struggling with alcoholism sees me drinking, they might be emboldened to do that and ruin their life. That's why I don't drink. Do I think all Christians should abstain from alcohol in any way, shape, or form? No, I don't think the Bible teaches that. But I know for me personally, uh, I'm not going to go near that because in a lot of ways, I look at myself and I say, you know, if I allowed that a place in my life, I'd probably be an alcoholic. So does that mean I'm not going to heaven uh, because I'm a dry alcoholic? Not according to what God said. Yeah. So because I'm a new creation in Christ, I put that sort of thing away. I realize I have that tendency in my life, and I just don't want to give rule and reign to that in my life. So I put it away. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, we just need to clarify the definition of heaven. If I'm going to make it as simple as possible in two words, it's with Jesus. How do I have a relationship with Jesus? How do I go to heaven, not just in the next life, but in this life now? It's not by obeying his commands. That flows naturally from his heart, which he said in his word he'll give to you if you do what? As you said, trust his promise that if I live, you will live also. If you believe that he is not only Lord, who he claimed to be, but how he proved it, that he rose from the dead, Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, you will be saved. Quoting the Old Testament, by the way. So when we're talking about these right. issues, don't let pet sins or the uh, un the the top tier sins, you know, the the cardinal sins. I think they are referred to as the mortal sins, as opposed to the venial. All these things are literal nonsense when compared to Scripture. Obviously, there shouldn't be excuses made for our flesh to make wreck and ruin of our lives, but when it comes down to it, spiritual consequences and physical consequences are two different things. Right. Some sins have bigger impacts on our lives and the lives of others. It doesn't mean that they don't have fellowship with Jesus, it just means they're not going to be enjoying it as much as they could if they weren't taking that sin seriously, or if they would. So just be careful with that mindset, Mac, and again, let us know if uh, maybe the legalism is starting to creep up on you. We want to make sure that we understand grace first. Yeah. Um, got a question from Isaiah. I'm not sure I understand it, but I'll do my best. Let me know if this is the crux of what you're asking. But he has an atheist friend who's a part of a nudist movement and says that we're hypocrites for calling them immodest, and then makes a bunch of broad accusations saying that you're more likely to get sexually assaulted in church than in prison. Um, fun. That's irrelevant to the topic, but when it comes to nudism... Okay, here's the bottom line. This guy says, and it doesn't really have to... I mean, nudism is kind of, look over here, look over here, I'm going to bring up this uh, this you know red herring kind of a thing. The, the, the bottom line in this question is this guy's objection. I won't come to Christ unless you repent of your hypocrisy for calling us immodest. 
Well, the hypocrisy is non-existent because you haven't first set down what our standards are appropriately. Well, well the, the, the operative word, and this is the, the age-old objection, why should I become a Christian? The biggest hypocrites are in the church. Don't How judge do we respond to that? Don't judge a religion by its abusers. When we follow Jesus and we fail to follow Jesus, that doesn't mean the one we're following doesn't exist or did those things. If I fail to follow him, that's my fault, not his. If, on the other hand, I take a step forward and say, oh, where's that in your Bible? Well, Paul the Apostle is a paragon of virtue beyond anything I'll likely achieve this side of heaven. And in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, he made a very explicit instruction to the church he was speaking to. Follow me as I follow Christ. Now, Christ, the last time I checked his biographies, <laughs> did not assault anybody in his congregation. He did not, you know, uh, play the hypocrite with nudist colonies or whatever caricature you're going to try to make of him. If you don't like the fact that Christians don't act like Jesus, or in this case, just aren't acting the way you want them to, that doesn't mean Jesus isn't worth following. It just means they got to follow him better. But if, on the other hand, we're going to take a step back and ask, so, and, and again, I'll dovetail into the nudist aspect of it, why it's probably going to appeal to an atheist mindset, but not every. Anything more to add on that as far as the don't follow the followers, follow the one they're following? Well, yeah, you mentioned the Apostle Paul, and uh, boy, talking about a, a moral paragon like you mentioned, but even the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants, for Jesus' sake, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, when people say, well, why should I become a Christian? The worst hypocrites are in the church. Well, the first thing that I would point out to somebody is, do you know anyone who can honestly say that 100% of the time they live up to even their own moral code. Uh, no. You know, we all, in a sense, say one thing and do another at some point in life. If someone says, well, I, I don't know if I want to join, uh, become a Christian because of all the hypocrites in the church, my immediate response to that is, hey, you know, come on in. There's always room for one more. I mean, none of us can say that we are right with God because we live this perfect, pristine uh, life. The other thing that I would say is this. Uh, you know, it takes a pretty small person to hide behind a hypocrite uh, and let, and instead of considering who Jesus is. And, and this is really, I think, where you got to get with all of this. Uh, instead of this person saying, I'm not going to consider the claims of Christ until you come around to my way of thinking about nudism, um, that's a completely separate issue. The, the main issue is, who, in your opinion, is Jesus Christ? Who do you think he is? Do you consider the, have you ever considered the evidence that he rose from the dead? Because if he did rise from the dead in a moment of history, I don't care what you do on your weekends and whether you wear clothes or not. That, that's a completely separate issue. The big issue is this. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then what he has to say about life, death, the afterlife, and how we live our lives in the here and now matters more than anything else. So, you know, rather than making your particular practice, if you will, of getting an all-over suntan on the weekends uh, the deciding factor in your entire life, um, 
maybe you should look at Jesus and ask this question. Is Jesus a hypocrite? That's why I follow him. He is not a hypocrite. Uh, he uh, had his life examined uh, microscopically by his enemies. He, in fact, he even threw out this challenge to his enemies in John chapter 7, uh, in verse 37, or I should say uh, it was in John 7, uh, 37, but it's John 7. He said, which one of you accuses me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why don't you believe me? Now, notice Jesus, uh, to his enemies who wanted to kill him, said, hey, if I've missed God's will in my life, please point it out. That would be the rough equivalent of a presidential candidate in a debate looking at the other candidate and say, well, why wouldn't you vote for me? Well, at that moment, that uh, other candidate would say, well, let me count the ways. Well, Jesus does that same thing with his enemies. Said, said, okay, if I've sinned, point it out. Go ahead. You know what their answer was? Silence. They couldn't find anything that would stick to Jesus. So you wanna, honestly. if you want to put your faith in someone who's not a hypocrite, I highly recommend putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, and then I guess following up briefly on the, I guess, pet topic of nudism. Obviously, when you're talking to people, there's going to be stranger conversations you'll have, believe me. Yeah. But if you We've had do yeah, if you do have the opportunity to talk to someone and it just seems odd, the first and most important goal in any conversation isn't to just throw out your Bible slogans, you know, hey, I'm sharing faith, like that means something. And, you know, all this other stuff that they're not going to understand. Start with the common ground. Is there according to the Christian worldview, something good in the desire to be naked and unashamed. Well, it's almost a borderline quote from the world we used to have in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. Isaiah, you can bring this up with your friend. It notes that when God brought man and woman together, it says they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So at this point, mankind had the capacity to live out the nudist's dream, if you don't mind the interesting picture. But what happened between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3 and verse 8 when they hid themselves from the Lord after seeing themselves naked and making themselves coverings? It wasn't hypocrisy. It was because they had done something not to suddenly see themselves in a wrong light, they had rebelled against God. Their relationship with God was severed, and thus the mindset that a nudist is trying to achieve was made impossible. Why? Because the shame is rightfully so there. What changed that? Well, the nudist is going to say societal pressures. Atheists uh, believe that morality, for the most part, is more a social construct than anything. And if we just rewrite the rules and get enough people to play by those right. rules, then we're not going to be like you horrible Christians that are assaulting each other like prison inmates. Well, okay, interesting caricature, but let's roll with it. According to the Christian <laughs> worldview, in order for us to get back to Eden, it's not us stopping acting like prison inmates. It's for us to suddenly start acting like we did before the garden. And that's not something that happens externally, because the external was irrelevant. The internal is what was damaged, so the internal is what has right. to be changed. Talk to your friend about if he's just that gung-ho about nudism. It may be a red herring, but who knows? You can 
take what you can. If I was talking to someone in outreach, this is what I would say. I would first emphasize the common ground. We both believe that the perfect world is where we can be naked and unashamed. If on the other hand, we were to take a step back and say, what was the cause of it? You say it was societal norms. I would say it's my relationship with God. Would you want to try my way of achieving your perfect world, or would you like to continue your way and ultimately end up accusing people of being serial rapists when they literally just want to have a nice conversation with you? That would be how I would approach the issue. Yeah. Start with a common ground, work into the person of Jesus Christ, and deal with the real issue. Yeah. Let us know if that helps you out, Isaiah, and thank you for the question. Again, uh, anything goes on the broadcast, yeah. I guess. Yeah, uh, interesting question on our uh, Calvary Christian Fellowship com website from Casey is Hebrews chapter 11 verses 24 through 26 telling us that Moses had faith in Jesus uh, there we read this Casey by faith Moses when he became of age refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoying the passing pleasures of sin esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Now, don't misunderstand my answer here, Casey, because we kind of have to be specific about what's being said here and what's not being said here. What's not being said here was uh, the reason that Moses turned down being the prince of Egypt and uh, decided uh, to give up all the perks and privileges along that was because he saw a vision of Jesus. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is, is that Moses' willingness to suffer with the people of God was much like the reproaches that Jesus himself experienced in a number of ways. Just as Moses left a position of privilege and uh, an ease to reach out and redeem God's people who were in a horrible set of circumstances. So we are told in the book of Philippians chapter 2 and uh, verses 5 and following that uh, Jesus did not require, regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. Now, that idea of Jesus taking on the, uh, the form of a servant, the, the absolute epitome of that, uh, what it's saying is that Jesus left the ultimate place of glory and power, heaven itself, to become a servant in order to reach individuals like us. Uh, the reproaches of Christ also parallel Moses' experiences because when Moses made that sacrifice, he didn't exactly get a high five from most people. A minority understood uh, that God had sent him, and a minority supported him through all of that. But as you're probably familiar from the accounts, Casey, the majority were all too inclined when the going got tough to turn on Moses, in fact, in a couple of situations, wanting to stone him. Uh, so uh, the reproaches of Christ that he went through, leaving heavenly glory to reach individuals like us, parallel there, uh, being less than thanked for the effort uh, also is in view there. So um, there are uh, passages that we can look at, Casey, that indicate that uh, Old Testament saints did have glimpses and bits and pieces of understanding 
of who Jesus was. In fact, uh, many of them, Sean, uh, had uh, encounters with a very enigmatic individual called the Angel of the Lord, who the evidence seems to indicate was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, right? Right, and that's what we need to keep in mind as well. Jesus didn't start to exist when he incarnated in his mother's womb, Mary, but of course he's existed, as uh, Micah 5.2 says, from beyond the vanishing point, from the ages to the ages, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Yeah, and, and so when we see the angel of the Lord appearing, speaking first person in the name of God, uh, receiving sacrifice or worship or these sort of things, uh, very uh, evident uh, that uh, Jesus had appeared to these individuals like Abraham. That's why Jesus was able to say about Abraham, he rejoiced to see my day, he saw it and was glad. Uh, the uh, Jewish leaders said, you're yet not yet 50 years old, you've seen Abraham. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. So, um, you know, encounters that... Uh, God had with his people, even individuals that were uh, kind of foreshadowings of Jesus, like Joseph, for instance, uh, a really interesting type of Jesus who was to come, or Melchizedek, whom Abraham met, a type, uh, a picture of Jesus who was to come. Uh, Old Testament saints did catch glimpses. Obviously, we have the fuller picture now. All right. A uh, question from Yari. Remember, we dealt with this a few weeks ago, but does that mean we don't have clothes in heaven? No, we will. We're told in Revelation that we will be clothed in white robes. Let's yeah. stick with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Dwayne yeah. wants to know, is it uh, bad to have too much technology? Like anything else, it depends what you do with it. If it interferes with your relationship with God, then work on it as far as your heart and your sense of time is concerned. But if it's not being abused, then it is, in fact, not being abused. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you really have to, you know, I would say you have to be careful about how you use technology. And I think by technology, uh, we talk about access to the internet and images and information. Uh, Philippians chapter four and verse eight gives us a great grid that we can look at and screen out a lot of things that are negative or leading us away from God. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatever things are righteous, whatever are lovely, of good report, if there's any virtue, there's anything worthy of praise, let your mind think on these things. So you got that grid, if you will, over your intake of technology is a good thing. All right, and then uh, we don't have time, unfortunately, but we'd encourage all of you listening, if you have a, a prayer group, Dwayne also asked for prayers for his mother, and we don't know if we can be public about the information yet, but in regards to alcoholism being brought up, a uh, regular listener of the broadcast was recently treated for uh, uh, stumbling with alcohol and is uh, having liver issues right now. Pray for that individual as well. The yep. Lord knows. Yep. <laughs> and you can keep him in prayer as well as for his family. But we'll be appreciating your guys' continued support of the broadcast and prayer for us. We'll see you all next time. God bless, God bless you. you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.